0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a few moments to let you know a bit of what's happening in our community. Today, Sam Seifert is teaching and continuing in our series, Finding Complete Joy. And then also, like I mentioned last week, an update for the weekly viewpoint. There are two ways you can currently get it. Right now on Fridays, that viewpoint goes out via Realm, and starting in a few weeks, you'll need to join a specific group in Realm to get that viewpoint. And so if you have a Realm account, you can add yourself to that group right now. And then the other way you can get the viewpoint is simply through our website or the link at the bottom of this podcast episode. And if you've been with us for a while and are interested in membership at Southview, there is a membership class coming up on February 12th at 7.30 p.m. It's online, so you can join from the comfort of your own home, and you can register for this class on Realm or on our website. And then lastly, this weekend, one of our elders, Andrew Sharesky, provided an update from our succession planning team. And so here you can have a listen.
1: And speaking of the direction of our church, Uh, And you all being part of that, you may know that our current senior pastor, Clyde Glass, is uh, retiring at the beginning of June here this year after 25 amazing years of serving here at Southview. With that transition approaching, uh, myself, along with a few other elders, pastors, and some members of our body, uh, have the privilege of serving on the succession planning team as we look to where God might be leading us in this new season. So we sent out a brief update on Realm just this past Thursday, but we want to give you as many updates as we can uh, throughout this process so you can be in prayer with us and provide us with your input and feedback. as well. Over the last number of weeks, we've been in dialogue with our staff and elders where we're seeking to discern where we are as a church right now and where God is leading us going forward. We want to ensure we're being attentive to his voice as we go through this process and to be patient not to rush into anything too quickly while still moving things along from there we'll begin to build a profile of what the next leader or leaders will look like to help move us in the direction where god is leading us and as a reminder this isn't yet the search committee that we're not quite at that stage just yet and we greatly value each of your input and feedback In the coming weeks, we'll be conducting a survey that we'll be inviting everyone to take part in. So we'll be providing more information on that soon. And our main request for you all is that you would be in prayer regularly and consistently in prayer for this process. Pray for our team, for the staff, for our elders, for Clyde, and for whoever our new leader may be. And above all, that Christ would be honored and glorified through this process. This is Christ's church and we know and trust that he's in control and he will build his church. And another reminder is that we've set up an email address, which is succession at southviewchurch.com, where you can contact us directly. Uh, We would love to hear from as many as as possible. And uh, please send us your thoughts, your concerns, your encouragements. uh, And as you ask God to speak, we'd love to hear what he's saying to you as well.
0: The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, which I mentioned earlier, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the new group I also mentioned earlier. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And then additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant, because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together.
2: Hello, Southview family. Good to be here uh, together with you, and uh, for those of you uh, joining online, uh, special welcome to you if you're down in Montana or even those lucky few who might be in Arizona. Come on back; it's nice here in Calgary. Uh, but we're uh, glad that we can be joined together uh, this weekend as we continue on in our uh, series in First John. Uh, And uh, really our high point in our uh, service uh, today is coming to this table of communion to be fed by Christ himself. So we will be coming to that uh, at the end of our service. But as we uh, jump in uh, this weekend, I just wanted to uh, get us to think a little bit about, uh, like, use our imaginations. Um, So let's say that uh, 25% of our church family... Think about 25. A quarter of our church family—that would be, include uh, maybe pastors, uh, some key leaders, uh, families in our church—and um, 25% of these people uh, got up and they left our church because they began to believe some different things about Jesus. But not only that, they started to call you up to get them to to get you to join with them. So they're hitting you on the gram. Social media, texting, all sorts of things, just bugging you, bugging you. And these are people that you've been doing life on life with. You trust these people. You watch football with these people. You play golf at Pritis with these people, maybe. These are people that you worship God with together. Maybe you've been in a small group together. All of a sudden, there they are, out there, believing something else. How would that make you feel? What would you be thinking about? Where would your faith be if that actually happened? What assurance would you need to keep following Jesus if that happened? And maybe you're here, maybe you're not a church person, but, uh, but maybe imagine some good friends of yours that got into some weird beliefs or conspiracy theories, and then they tried to get you to go down the rabbit hole with them, and all of a sudden, at the end of that, it kind of cratered your relationship, and you're no longer friends. How would you feel? What questions would you have? Where would you go for assurances about life and faith? Well, interesting, this is the situation that Pastor John is speaking into with his congregation in Western Asia. There's been a split in the church community, and some of its members have been lost through their departure. So healing is now needed. Reassurances need to be offered to these faithful people that are still in the church reasons to continue to embrace the fundamental values that they hold so dear because eternal life for these members of these communities is at stake. And so we come to this message from first John and it's important to think of first John uh, not really as a letter as we think of like many of Paul's letters with the intro and it, it, think of it more like a sermon. John is preaching this message to his flock. One scholar says that John is speaking to his congregation in order to strengthen true faith and mutual love and the joyful certainty of fellowship with God and of eternal life, which he brings. So John is passionately reinforcing the assurance of his flock by showing them that they were in the truth. And this really agrees with the kind of the purpose statement in chapter 5, verse 13, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, John's congregation needed this reassurance because their confidence had been shaken by the propaganda of these secessionists. These people who have, these families who have withdrawn formally from the membership of the church, and they're claiming to have this spirit-inspired teaching that actually went beyond what had been received from the beginning, the good news of Christ. What many would consider the beginnings of Gnosticism, which we looked at a little bit last week. And the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek term gnosis, which means knowledge, knowledge, And so Gnostics believed that devotees had gained some kind of special kind of spiritual enlightenment through which they had attained a secret or a higher level of knowledge not accessible to the uninitiated. And though they had seceded, they continued to try to influence those in the church that they might accept their teachings. That's why John would say in chapter 2, verse 26, I write these things to you concerning those who would what? Deceive you. So the secessionists insisted that they had a special anointing of the Spirit. And they made those remaining in the author's community wonder whether they lacked that same anointing or not, and whether their spiritual insight was on the same level as these other Gnostics. That's why John says in 2 verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And all of you have knowledge. So assurance then is kind of this pervading theme that's coming through John's sermon to his congregation. And his purpose isn't to attack those who have left. The sermon isn't for them. It's for those who are still in the church. But he needed to prevent those who were in the church from being deceived. So he provides them with some criteria by which they could evaluate and expose these people's false teaching. And so John he's an older pastor at this point in his career and he's a really good pastor so he kind of even takes it a step further and he he provides his congregation with some benchmarks that if they apply to themselves in their current situation it would show that they are the true followers of who God is they were the ones who knew God they were the ones who had fellowship with him and they were the ones who had eternal life. And it was in that truth they would find joy. So John, being a good pastor, he's really good at simplifying the Christian message. And so he's basically helping his congregation know and for us to discover today that we can know we are in the light if we love one another and if we love God. We can know we're in the light. He's going to give some benchmarks to help us understand what does that look like? Because why does this really matter for us even today? Well, because if you want joy and freedom in your life, and if we're being honest, and I would venture to guess uh, that is something we're all seeking, right? Joy and freedom in our life in these days. Well, the question is, how are you going to find it? What assurances do we need to hear today that will lead us to the joy of knowing that we are children of the light? And ultimately, the assurance of joy and freedom, it comes down basically to the choices that we make, how we love and who we love. And love is the, is the theme of the passage that we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. It's way in the back of your Bible, so start at Revelation, go the other way, and you'll find it pretty quick. 1 John chapter 2, if you have a, a Bible or a Bible app. Uh, Join with me there, and we're going to be looking at verse 7 to 17, uh, but we're going to kind of split that into three sections as we walk through. So I'm just going to read uh, the first section that we're going to look at, uh, verse 7 to uh, verse 11. And friends, this is the word of God. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says, I am the light, while hating a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go, because the darkness has brought on blindness." So given the theme of our passage of love, it's no accident that John literally calls his readers what? Beloved. There's a connection of the theme of love of what John is doing. Pastor John loves his people, just as he is going to encourage them to love one another. And so we see here the first benchmark that John gives his congregation to assure them that they they can be in the light. And he says, "Know you are in the light. By loving one another. And we are told that the commandment he has in mind is both old and new. Now, what could be both old and new? Now, John kind of leaves himself open to the charge of senility here in verse 8, I think. I mean, this guy's old, right? We may think he's losing his mind here. Look what he says in verse 7. I am writing you an old commandment. One verse later, he's already lost his mind. I'm writing you a new commandment. Like, which is it, John? Like, you're confusing me here. Come on, tell me what's going on. The answer is, it's both. It's old and new. And this word new has a sense of like uh, something fresh or novel as opposed to worn out and familiar. And so this commandment that is old or original is something that they have heard from the beginning of their Christian lives. When they first came to Christ and began to take part in the gospel community. And that we see that in verse 7 where it says, The word that you've heard. This is the commandment you have heard. But then it's new in the sense that God has now done a new thing in Christ and made possible a new intimacy with God, a new eschatological capacity to share God's love with one another. Similar to how Jesus spoke of giving his disciples a new commandment in John chapter 13. If you remember in John 13, uh, Jesus says in verse 34, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. So what was new about John chapter 13? Well, this love commandment differs from that great commandment to love God and neighbor which really goes all the way back to Moses, if you remember in Leviticus chapter 19, in that it, direct, it is directed now to Jesus' followers alone. And it's meant to kind of create a certain ethos or fellowship among his disciples. So this is no longer talking about a general love for neighbor, but a force that unites a particular community together, followers of Jesus. Now, what I find interesting is Jesus was commanding love. How can you command someone to feel an emotion? I mean, it's a great question, isn't it? You can't make someone love someone, can you? Well, maybe Jesus is giving us a clue that what he means by love and what we mean by love are two different things. Because to us, love seems like an emotion, Right? But perhaps Jesus is signaling that love isn't an emotion. Maybe in the kingdom of God, love is a decision. And John goes on to give us a really clear definition of love in chapter 3, verse 16, when he says this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. He goes on in verse 18, little children, Let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and in action. So love's not only a choice, but love is about action. It involves rugged, self-sacrificial commitment to others, modeled on Jesus' own self-sacrifice to us. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight in his book, uh, 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 Fellowship of Difference, I would really encourage you to to read it. It provides some further kind of categories to think through the nature of biblical love as we learn of it from God's own love. So he defines love broadly as rugged commitment. And he adds that it is a commitment to be with and for another person unto likeness. So love is a rugged commitment because it is often hard work, correct? It is with Because love is about sharing presence together, being in community with one another. It is for, because love means you will be their advocate. You're on that person's side. And it is unto, because love is directional. It moves towards the one to whom we surrender our love. And he goes on to say in his book that these love prepositions give shape to our understanding of what love is revealed by God's love in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that believers shouldn't extend love to people who don't know Jesus. That's not what John's concern is in this text. The light that he says that shines in the dark world is the love that believers demonstrate for one another in the community of faith. Now, John is really good at using contrast. He uses dark and light, hate and love, And there's these two kind of polar opposite things. While our experience often in life seems to be a little bit more complicated and nuanced, doesn't it? It doesn't seem so black and white. But John's reminding us, and his point is to his readers, that there are ultimately only two allegiances. Either you're of the world and in darkness, or you belong to Jesus and are in the light. Hate and love, therefore, become outward signs of someone's true spiritual reality. So, what does that mean? Well, loving one another is hard. Would you agree? Okay, yeah. Maybe it's easier for you. I I find it hard. Especially Christians. (laughs) I don't know about you, but being in a church, like, it's hard, hard work to love people. It's hard work. In fact, love for each other can be one of the greatest challenges uh, for us as believers. And why is it so hard? Well, I wonder if the brother and sister imagery can help us kind of work through this a little bit. Uh, while we may love our little literal brothers and sisters, fighting among siblings is kind of stereotypically common in many households, isn't it? Maybe not in yours, but believe it or not, it actually happens in ours what? The pastor's house? Their kids fight? Mom and dad fight? What what is going on? It is is challenging. Sibling, Sibling rivalry can cause deep and lasting emotional damage among family members. You may have your own stories of sibling rivalry that you grew up with, and there's challenges in your family. Um, Recently, I was down in uh, Montana uh, skiing uh, with my girls and my older brother and his daughter uh, flew up from California. We went skiing together. This is my older brother. We were skiing in January and uh, we were actually at the ski hill. I was telling my girls where my brothers and I learned how to ski at Red Lodge Mountain outside of Billings, Montana. And here's the little uh, uh, bunny hill that we learned to ski on. And so uh, they have a magic carpet now. But when we were kids, we were both, we were all in elementary school. So we were little young whippersnappers and they had a tow rope, the ones that you hang on to and go up the snow track. Anyway, my older brother's in front of me. He's going up, we're at lessons and uh, he falls off the tow rope. So he's in the track where I'm coming up next. I'm yelling at him to get out of the way. And he's kind of horsing around, at least that's what I thought he was doing. He was trying to get out, and I'm like, coming, I'm like, get out of the way, I'm gonna wreck. And so he's just kind of laying there, and I hit him. I fall down, I'm livid. We start punching each other. I grab his hat. I throw it up in the trees, 20 feet up on the right side. They had to shut down the tow rope, and all the instructors are coming off, pulling these two brothers off, fighting for each other. My parents are over there. I don't know those kids. <laughs> like it's, it's, this, it's going on like crazy. The reality is we can treat our siblings with a harshness that most of us would never extend to non-family members, Correct. If that was another kid that I didn't know in that track, do you think I would have done the same thing? No. I would have gave them grace. I would have been like, oh, that sucks. I fell off. My brother, boom, boom, boom. (laughs) You know? Why is that? Well, I think when we're really close to someone, like a sibling, we can sometimes lose respect for them, perhaps because we see them as an extension of ourselves. When this happens, we tend to view their faults and failings in kind of a more acute way than we would if, we were, if it was someone else. We may take more offense at the things they do or say than we would if we were not so close. This means that as we rightly develop close relationships within the body of Christ with our spiritual brothers and sisters... Our intimacy, our closeness can inadvertently cause us to treat each other with disrespect. And in these cases, being with others does not necessarily translate to being for them. Closeness can breed antagonism instead of advocacy. And if that's the case, it's impossible to move unto Christ-likeness together. And of course, there's lots of reasons why Christians fall out of relationship with one another, aren't there? Theological disagreements. Did you know there's over 45,000 Christian denominations globally? We love to disagree as Christians. How about disagreements over how church is run? Disagreements over politics, parenting. Just think of the challenges that we walked through as a church over the last few years with COVID. You see, part of the pain of disagreements is that we are supposed to be united. We're supposed to be of one mind, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. So when we disagree, what does it do? It hurts. And when we add hurt to our differences, that's when divisions can set in. But the, div- the good news is that our divisions can be overcome. If only there was something that could help us overcome divisions? What would be that word? Hmm. Love? Love. Sacrificial commitment puts our own desires on hold in order to uphold another. It enables us to put aside our own hurts and exercise patience and forbearance. Let me give you an example of how this works out. So uh, Charles Spurgeon... And uh, Joseph Parker were uh, prominent uh, uh, pastors in uh, London in the 19th century. And uh, 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 Jackson, or, or Parker, the guy on the left here, uh, one Sunday, uh, Parker spoke about the impoverished uh, condition of the children welcomed by Spurgeon's orphanage. Spurgeon's uh, church had an orphanage. And, but Spurgeon heard that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. So the next week, Spurgeon got up in the pulpit and he railed against Parker and what he had said. Now, this made it into the local newspapers and it was kind of the talk of the town. Two pastors going at it. What's going to happen? Christians love a good battle. So everybody showed up to Parker's church the next week to see how he was going to then go after Spurgeon. So this is what happened. Parker gets up. And he says, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd went wild. They brought out the offering plates. They actually had to pass them three times because the money was just flowing over the the baskets. And this is an example of a division between two Christian pastors caused by a misunderstanding and hasty overreaction. But Parker chose to respond to Spurgeon's harsh response with grace and love. And the rift was immediately healed in the community. So to live in the light then involves living according to love. Hatred of brothers and sisters is totally incompatible with being in the light. In fact, the two things are mutually exclusive. Joy is found in loving our fellow believers And so John is saying, if brother and sister marks out true believers in this passage that we just read, then in verse 12 to 17, love for the father marks a true believer then. And this passage has kind of two parts. The two parts of the passage work together to remind remind John's readers of who they are on the account of the work of God in their lives and to warn them that their love for him is incompatible with their love for the world. Now we need to remember, what was the purpose of John's sermon? To build up this community and encourage, and encourage them by mentioning things that they have done well. To encourage them. And in light of this recent split, he's reminding them of their core values, of who they are, to hold to the beliefs that they've been walking in. And so in verse 12 to 14 is kind of a bit of a poetry, a little song here. John is writing to them because of what God has done in their lives. He wants to encourage them to live out their true identity as people who are loved by God. And John, in this little passage, he uses repetition. And this gives us a clue that what he is saying here is really important. I mean, if you're a parent, you're familiar with repetition, aren't you? You remind your kids to brush their teeth over and over again. Why? Because you repeat what is important to you. And so John writes to these children and fathers and young men, and it is clear that their identities have been shaped by the work of God. And John uses this term children. We see it all through the the sermon throughout the letter. It always includes everyone. It's it's this whole community. Now, we don't know why he has these other subgroups of, of fathers and young men. I mean, there's varying opinions on that if you want to look into it. But the main point that he's getting here is clear. All of John's listeners have been shaped by God through the forgiveness of sins, the knowledge of the Father, and overcoming the evil one. John's reason for writing them are due to the fact that these recipients have been a part of God's transformative work. And I think as we live as Christians, this is an important principle for us to understand because among believers, there is no room for pride about anything. Even the most mature, godly, gifted followers of Jesus cannot claim credit for their achievements. The mature believer can take no more credit for their transformation than a beautiful butterfly having going through metamorphosis. We may marvel at its beauty. We may be amazed when we consider the butterfly's previous condition as this ugly little caterpillar. But we cannot say, Wow, butterfly, butterfly, you have done a great job at becoming so beautiful. The process of metamorphosis is not under the caterpillar's control. And the final product is beyond its imagination. Yeah, their final appearance is a work of art, but the caterpillar is not the artist. The caterpillar butterfly is the canvas that displays the work of the artist. And so too, we as followers of Jesus are not the artists of our own beauty. We are the canvas. God is the artist. He has transformed us from belonging to a world in rebellion against God and its lusts and its pride and brought us into relationship with himself. He has forgiven us our ugly sin. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you came forward with all of your ugly stuff and threw it in the bucket. And what did that sheet do? Dissolved. Gone. Gone. God forgives us all our ugly sin. He's given us true knowledge of who he is. And he's enabled us to overcome the evil one. John writes to such transformed people. And the transformation has been remarkable. The believers are identified by these beautiful life-changing characteristics. So John's affirmation of his reader's spiritual status provides the backdrop then for the exhortation that follows in verse 15 when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, if verse 15 to 17 had not been preceded by verses 12 through 14, it would sound like John is rebuking his audience for things that they were doing wrong. But this exhortation now reads as more like a warning to people who are in Christ saying, hey, Because of what God's done, don't love the world. And so he provides another benchmark for his people. He says, you can know you are on the light by loving God. C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant address, The Weight of Glory, he talks about our desire for our own far-off country. Then he asks, do you think I am trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. So these verses we're walking into are about breaking the evil enchantment of worldliness. I love that quote. And the command not to love the world begins in verse 15. And that word cosmos, translated world, is is really capable of lots of different meanings, but John's use of that word is typically negative. It, it means depicting a rebellious humanity in opposition to God. C. H. Dodd says that world here refers to the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. So clearly, John's uh, meaning here in verse 15 to 17 is negative because his examples of all that is in the world are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in riches. And I like how the message uh, paraphrases that. It says, all that is in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, to have some serious drip. As the kids say. <laughs> now, this isn't advice to abandon or to abuse the material creation that we live in, nor is a call to dislike fallen humanity. Rather, the concern here is to avoid the adoption of worldly attitudes and ways. And so there's this desire of the flesh, which presumably means sinful desires. It's not limited to, but certainly includes, sexual desires. But John is probably using flesh here in his Jewish and biblical sense of the nature of a person as a worldly being separated from and opposed to God. And then these next two phrases kind of probably fill out this idea of sinful desire. The desires of the eyes. That refers to desires that are roused by things that we can see. Obviously, the eyes are a source of desire, what we can see. And the thought here is really of greed, which is roused by what one sees. And we may think particularly of the desire to watch things which may give sinful pleasure like uh, pornography or of the tendency to be captivated by outward visible splendor or show. But probably the basic thought here is of greed and desiring for things aroused by seeing them. So here's an example. Here's how this plays out in my own personal life. So I was uh, recently uh, riding with my friend in his brand new Acura MDX. All right? We're driving down a narrow uh, mountain road at dark time. and It's in nighttime. And I was coveting his headlights, okay? He has those LED bright white headlights that the light beams were like, the high beams were like radiant beams of sunlight going out across the mountain landscape. I could see squirrels playing in trees 200 yards off, literally perpendicular to the car. It was crazy. I drive a 2000 Honda Accord. When I turn the light switch on, two little elves go out there and light a tea lamp. <laughs> and it's like a one-foot radius of light. And I can't go too fast or the candle will blow out. So I'm sitting in his car and I'm coveting his headlights. This is a reality of that just plays out in my life every single day, how, I, how it works. So how do I combat worldliness? Well, I have to do things that help me ground the truth of who I am and not to go after the worldly things. So in my car, um, in our vehicles, actually, we tie little um, uh, yarn strips to the gear shifts. And this is something that I picked up from my parents. They do it in all their vehicles as well. And what it is, it's a daily reminder that this car is a gift from God and that I'm thankful for what he's provided for us. It helps me to combat the enchantments of worldliness in my own personal life. He goes on to say, also the pride of riches, which it really means the pride of life. And it doesn't mean pride in a positive way, but rather arrogance or showing off a pride in one's lifestyle. Now, it's important to understand, clearly, all people need possessions. And therefore, it cannot be wrong to want and take pleasure in and what God has provided for our needs. But when I begin to covet whatever I see, to boast of what I have, and to claim that I am self sufficient, then my desires have become sinful. If we have truly been transformed by God, having been made His children and having come to know Him, then our loves need to ultimately shift. And John is saying love for the father is incompatible with love for the world and its worldly values. We're ultimately going to choose one or the other. So, for us today, I want to ask a few questions. Who is it God inviting you to love with rugged commitment? To be with and for that person and ultimately unto Christ's likeness together. And how are you going to love them this week? And how are you going to get up next week and love them again? What is God reminding you today about who you are? Do you need the assurance of forgiveness? Do you need the assurance that Christ, through Christ you have overcome the evil one? In Christ you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Are you living out your identity? And where are your wants leading you these days? Are you wanting your own way? Wanting everything for yourself? Wanting to appear important? Because John reminds us that the world and all its wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Friends, you can know you're in the light by your love for one another and your love for God. Let's walk as children of light this week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, We love you because you first loved us. So help us to love one another here at Southview with rugged commitment. Remind us of who we are in light of what you've done. And continue to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness that so pulls at us. God, we don't want to love the world, but because we have sinful hearts, we're tempted to to love the world in all kinds of ways. So give us grace not to take pleasure in the world, but instead to take pleasure in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, we can't do this on our own, can we? We need Jesus. So we come to this table to receive from him the strength to love. So we're going to do something a little different. I uh, just want you to grab your communion to take out the, the bread and then open the cup as well. This way we will limit us crinkling as we walk through this. So I want you to hold on to both of those. So open both. Take the top one off. And open your juice as well. And hold them. And I'm going to read from First Corinthians. This is, this is Paul speaking. And I'm going to read in the message in chapter 11. So let's walk through this together. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. and After he gave thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Every time you drink, I want you to remember, remember me. And what you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You'll be drawn back to this meal again and again, until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. So anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? So examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought... Or worse, don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink. You're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you even now are listless and sick, and others have gone to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we won't have to be straightened out later on. Better to be confronted by the master now than to face a fiery confrontation later. So my friends, when you come together to the Lord's table, be reverent and courteous to one another. If you're so hungry that you can't wait to be served, go home and get a sandwich. But by no means risk turning this meal into an eating and drinking binge or a family squabble. It is a spiritual meal, a love feast. So Father, we give you thanks for this meal and your deep everlasting love for us. We pray now that you would feed us in this meal in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, the body of Christ was broken for you. Receive from him. The blood of Christ was poured out for you. Receive from him. Amen. Amen. Well, we hope you can engage with the various ministries that happen throughout our week here at Southview. We hope to see you next week and again as we continue on in our uh, series in 1 John. Uh, But as we close, I invite you to stand for a word of benediction uh, as you're sent into this uh, world to love, care for one another, and to find ways how God wants to use you. And so... So receive these words, and you want to hold out your hands as a posture of reception of what God wants to give to you today. So go now with your trust in the good shepherd, and let us love, not just in words, but in truth and action. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And may God be at your side, even in the valley of death. May Christ Jesus be the cornerstone of your life. And may the Holy Spirit abide in you and tend you with love and mercy all the days of your life. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight. Let's hang out afterwards. Come chat with me. If you haven't met me, I'd love to meet you.